Hey, welcome to the show tonight. Another great Monday, and as you can tell, I've got that obnoxious air conditioner on today. It is back in the hundreds here, so I have no choice. I enjoyed last week when I didn't have to use it, but it is what it is in Sacramento, California during during the summer. My name is Charlotte, and I'm going to be your host tonight uh, for the next hour. And I own the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team at www.californiahaunts.org. We're a nonprofit organization, and we go out and help people with their alleged paranormal problems and we work through to find out what's actually causing stuff anyway if you want to check out the radio show all of our um, shows are listed on our website at www.californiahauntsradio.com and everything going all the way back to last September is listed up there so we've got a bunch of stuff on there about 66 shows if you want to check it out anyway welcome and I want to get on with the show we got a great guest tonight because you know history is a funny thing and the timing of this was interesting today because if anybody, if you guys have been following the news, the uh, last plane, uh, planes with our military guys have flown out of Afghanistan as of this afternoon. And so we're no longer over in Afghanistan. And that was what it was, a, what a 20 year after 20 year war. And the timing of tonight is, is pretty good because the guest we have on, Don Brown, he has written several books, but one of the books that, that, that really stands out to me is a book on SEAL Team 6. And SEAL Team 6 was shot down over Afghanistan in 2011. And Mr. Brown seems to think that there's uh, more to it than what the media has let, let go and what the government's released. So without further ado, I'm going to bring Mr. Brown on to tell his own story. Well, sh good evening, Charlotte. How are Hello, you? Hello, how are you doing, sir? Well, yeah, first off, I'm not Mr. Brown. I'm just Don. My daddy, he was Mr. Brown. <laughs> uh, but I, lo I love uh, Sacramento. I've been on KTKZ a few times uh, with uh, my buddy Phil out there. And so it's a beautiful part of the country. Spent some time over at Tahoe. Used to live in California. So uh, I feel almost like I'm home again whenever I'm with a California media, uh, media personality. So we really appreciate you having me tonight and, and letting us spend some time to bring attention to this uh, shoot down of the SEAL team back in 2011. And these are some interesting difficult times for sure so i really appreciate you and thank you for having me anytime and no problem tell us a little bit about yourself i'm an ex-us navy jag officer I spent uh 16 years in the navy five active duty the rest of the time in reserve and uh i'm also an author i have uh, 15 books that have been published on the u.s military number 16 about to come out in december or january uh, some are fiction some are non-fiction um you know, I started with Zonovan and wrote some military fiction called the Navy Justice Series. My first book was published back in 2005. So it's given me something to do all these years. And also I'm an active attorney practicing. But uh, a few years ago, I got involved in this case uh, involving Extortion 17. This military helicopter was shot down and got deeper and deeper into that and have migrated basically from fiction to nonfiction. Some of the nonfiction works that I've done have been really fun like last fighter pilot um mm -hmm. story of the final combat mission of the war with captain jerry yellen i got to, to meet him and be with him and we kicked that book off out in la in 2017 but then there's some difficult ones like this one that you're having me on for tonight extortion mm -hmm. 17 when you have to write about lost life that's very very hard especially when you get to know some of the family members um but that's about it I, that's my story i'm sort of sticking to it all my kids are up <laughs> and out one's a judge one is a paratrooper in the U.S. Army, and the third is a nurse. So I know I don't look old enough to have kids that are up and grown. Thank you very much. But uh, <laughs> that's that's my story. And I'm sticking to it. Anything else you want to know, you have to either ask me or bribe me. So just let me know. 
Sounds good to me. When I was looking over your books, I really want to read The Last Fighter Pilot. I love books like that, and I'm, I'm just eager. In fact, I, I ordered it today. Well, thank you so much. So I can read it, yeah. Yeah, that, that one, by the way, is um, under some possible film production. Um, there's a there's a t production crew that's been working there, uh, but that was a real joy to write. Captain Jerry Yellen through the flew the final combat mission of the war, and he flew it on the day that the emperor announced his surrender. He oh. and his wingman, uh, young Lieutenant Phil Schlomberg, there were two Jewish guys who flew the very final mission of the war, diving in toward an airfield there in Tokyo. See, we dropped two bombs, and after we dropped the second bomb in Nagasaki. Uh, President Truman tried to get the Japanese to surrender, and they didn't want to surrender. So he ordered the air the air war to start again. But anyway, I, I got to meet Jerry and know him and spend some 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 pr priceless time with him during the final months of his life. And he's he was a national treasure. So thanks for ordering that. I do hope you enjoy it. Oh, absolutely. You'll find it a little more up uplifting than some of the tragedies I've had to write. But it's a it's <laughs> a I was lucky to be able to to write that book. I hear you. How did you get involved? Well, as a JAG, obviously, how, how did you get involved in writing this book? Well, that's a very good question. You know, one day um, in 2013, um, I was basically, you know, surfing the internet, and uh, as we do sometimes, mm -hmm. and I saw this uh, press conference that press conference wasn't live. It had been conducted a week or so earlier, but it was for the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., and that was about uh, that. It was a, the press conference about the shoot down of this helicopter called Extortion 17. I heard about this helicopter, Extortion 17. That's the call sign of a U.S. Army Chinook helicopter. It's a mm -hmm. troop carrier. We see them. We, we saw them lifting folks off our embassy in Afghanistan just last week. The sure. workhorse helicopter. And at the um, and I heard about us losing these Navy SEALs back in 2011, but because relatively little amount, a little amount of attention had been given to it. I hadn't thought of, um, as much about it as I should have, but at this press conference, there were these family members there who had lost uh, some of their sons, and obviously they were in a lot of pain, a lot of confusion. There were several members of the Congress who were there and several retired, very high-ranking generals and admirals who were there giving their support. And as I was watching this press conference, which lasted over an hour, and you, know, you can still find that press conference online today, uh, it was very obvious to me that something had gone wrong with this mission, something had gone terribly wrong. And uh, I'd spent some time out in San Diego, just down Interstate 5, a, a ways from you. Well, you got to go over to Interstate 5 before you go down it. But, <laughs> but, but um, and had handled a major aviation disaster there. Uh, we had lost an F-14 Tomcat. You ever saw the movie Top Gun? That's what Tom Cruise flew the first time. And so, uh, anyway, uh, and I was a JAG officer assigned to that case. Wound up um, investigating and then handling it all the way through federal court. So, uh when I saw this press conference and I saw these parents were in a lot of pain and I could sense that something wasn't right, something was wrong about what had happened. So um, I basically sent a Facebook message to one of the uh, mothers and said, hey, listen, um, you know, I, I just saw your press conference. I'm an ex-Navy JAG. I've got some experience in major aviation disasters. If I can help you, just let me know. I mean, if I'd be happy to. And I told her I've been an author. I, I'd had about seven books published at that time. Mm -hmm. She wrote back. She said she called. She wrote back. Said we, you know, we've been praying about somebody to write a book. Uh, we'd like to talk to you. And, and I wasn't really, honestly, expecting to hear anything back, but I did. And so um, I live in Charlotte, in North Carolina, and and Billy and Karen Vaughn live in the Palm Beach area, but they're from Western Tennessee, and they had been out visiting their family, and were coming back to Florida. And I drove from Charlotte down to Atlanta about four hours, met them in a Denny's restaurant, talked to them for about four hours. And, of course, they're trying to size me up. They don't know who they can trust from the government or not. And, of course, I wasn't active with the government at the time. I'd, I had been off even off the reserves for a few years at that time. Uh, but at the end of the conversation, I, I think I had a sausage, egg, and cheese omelet. You know, you're talking about hamburgers early, making me hungry. You asked you asked me to tell, tell you about myself, I can get talked into getting hungry really quick. But I had like a sausage, egg, and cheese omelet. And, and we talked, and at the end of that, um, Billy Vaughn said, well, you know, I think I can trust you. And he slips so he slips his little flash drive across the table. And he said, this is the entire investigation. And uh, the strange thing about the shoot down that I had gathered a little bit from watching the, the, uh, the, vid the press conference is that somehow, some way, about – 1,200 pages, 1,200 pages of evidence 
going to explain the shootdown had been somehow declassified, which is a big mystery to this day, and released within 60 days of the shootdown. Obviously, somebody wanted the truth out. So I took the disc home and, um, you know, read through and, you know, studied it, studied the evidence. It was very, very clear to me there had been a cover-up, something had gone wrong. And so one thing led to another, and um, my book, uh, Call Sign Extortion 17, on which the new movie Fallen Angel, uh, which has just mm -hmm. been released, is largely based upon, um, that book was based largely on the military's own uh, investigative, investigate not the report, the report was a cover-up, but the evidence behind the report pointed to the cover-up. So the, the book was written largely based upon that. And the book was released in 2015. And I had hoped that when the book was released, that people would step forward. So when the book was released, people say conspiracy theory, you know, because when they want you to know anything, it's always conspiracy theory. Right. You, you, and so, um, but sure enough, within two years, people, were, people, witnesses, military witnesses on the ground began to step forward. One, a very important witness is from there in California, Captain Joni Marquez, who uh, we had had an, we had had a AC-130, U.S. Air Force AC-130 circling overhead, watching this whole thing unfold. And I knew about this because I've read the military transcripts. But when you read these transcripts, they don't give names for security reasons. So you don't know the name of, of who is giving the testimony, except we knew the, the pilot of the AC-130 and the navigator were testifying because this helicopter was flying into a Taliban trap, it looked like. And there were Taliban, what they call squirters, they were combatants on the ground with objects moving toward the landing zone. Obviously, the flight crew of the AC-130 looking down could see the helicopter moving into place and considered what was happening on the ground as a tremendous threat to the helicopter. And they called flight control and tried to call the, they said, hey, turn the chopper around. Uh, that was refused. They said, then, hey, let us take out the Taliban on the ground moving toward the landing zone. Permission was denied for pre-assault fire. And uh, so I, I put all that in the book and people said, conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory. Then Captain Marquez, God bless her, comes forward. She steps forward and she uh, she verifies that. And we've had others step forward as well. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, there was a, a movie, a docudrama movie just released called Fallen Angel, mm -hmm. which is available at SalemNow.com. And Captain Marquez actually um, makes an appearance in that, in that movie and her testimony is compelling. So, it's kind of a long answer to question, but it all started with me watching a press conference and something telling me you got to try to offer to help if you can. And now here, here we are on your wonderful show. So it's amazing the way things work out. So as a former JAG officer, though, you were able to do the research into this. I mean, it would be a lot easier for you than it would be other people because you kind of have the insight on how to get stuff, right? Well, tr that's true. There's a lot, a lot of truth to that. Um, first off, um, you know, I'm both a, in a JAG officer is nothing more than a, an, an attorney who's mm -hmm. an officer in the in the military. And uh, but there is a thing called legalese in the in the mil in the legal world. It's a bunch of jabbery stuff that most people can't read, and I think it's about a zion sometimes. But in on top of that, in the military where we have militaries, everything's in acronyms. You know, CENTCOM, mm -hmm. surf surfland, comlab, surfland. You know, sinkus navier. You could go on and on and on. You say what? So. There's so much is written in military ease, it's hard to understand. I could read the language. And, of course, then having just having been in the unique situation of having handled this F-14 disaster, we lost we lost a student pilot, and it, we almost lost two pilots. We lost a student, and the instructor was saved. They crashed into a helicopter, um, you know, hangar at Brownfield in South San Diego County. I was just in a position that uh, sort of, was sort of unique, from that situation, because you're right. I mean, I know how to read the military's language. I know about the chains of command. I know what should happen. Uh, I know how the investigation should have been carried out generally. And so all that sort of was an advantage to me in, in being able to try to help these folks. And uh, I hope that it's been helpful. And I hope that we continue to, you know, if somebody's there here tonight, you know, who's listening to your, to your show, and mm -hmm. if you're on the ground in Afghanistan and the Tangy River Valley, uh, on August 6, 2011, the early hours in the morning when the chopper went down, you know something? DonBrownBooks at gmail.com. Send me an email. And uh, and we're, we're still pressing for answers, even though the first movie, which I hope will be one of many, there have been many movies about Pearl Harbor and Normandy and other events. Uh, we want to get the truth out, and we want also um, for the rules of engagement to be established so that, you know, our servicemen 
women are not in danger. So the more we get the truth out, the better, the better an opportunity we have to try to, to try, try to save our forces in the future. So that's what we're trying to do. And when we have folks like you who are kind enough to, you know, give me your camera, your microphone for a few minutes, mm -hmm. we appreciate that. You know, when I say we, I'm just not talking about me. I'm talking about Gold Star family members, the Vaughns and, and, you know, and folks like Doug Hamburger, who lost his son, Patrick, on this chopper, and mm -hmm. Charlie Strange, whose son, Michael, is a Navy cryptologist. I, I'm talking about all of us who are interested in seeking the truth, the producers of Fallen Angel and the director of Stephen Spivey and Horse, Carl Horseman and others. We want to, we're, we're still pushing to get at more information. And um, we have, I believe, um, you know, we've exposed a lot, but we still have more questions than answers. And, uh, and these families are of answers. The other thing that is a concern to me is that, you know, this, uh, this was the largest law. When this chopper went down uh, on August 6, 2011, first off, there are some strange things about it. It was only 96 days after U.S. Navy SEALs took out Osama bin Laden. Mm -hmm. We know that the Taliban, because we intercepted intelligence, had moved over 100 fighters into this valley called the Tangi River Valley in Wardak Province solely for the purpose of shooting down a U.S helicopter with navy seals they wanted to retaliate so they were looking for us we knew that already so the timing is, is strange you know and um this chopper goes down it's shot down there's a it, 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 it flies a mission should have been wheels up wheels down only 10 minutes the reason the mission was flown we don't know we know what the military said the military has said at one point that uh they were going after an operative name a Taliban operative named uh, Karee tahir but I can tell you, because I've talked to our former station chief, CIA station chief in Kabul, and one thing I learned, by the way, that I didn't even know when the book came out. I, I've learned from CIA operatives themselves who've told me, and I verified it, that at the beginning of the Afghan war in 2001, that the CIA took operational control over SEAL Team 6, our most elite fighting unit. I mean, you can debate whether they should have done that or not. I mean, mm -hmm. I personally think that military should remain in the military, but Having said that, CIA had a list of terrorists that we needed to go after, and, and SEAL Team 6 was the best of that. So I can see why they did that. Right. But I was told by our station chief commander uh, that, look, SEAL Team 6 would never go after a mid-level Taliban operative. You, you have to have higher value before mm -hmm. they, would, they, would, they would send this team against somebody like that. And, and this Kareem Tahir um, was actually taken out two weeks after this mission by a missile from an F-16. So you could you you could you had to send SEAL Team Six after to take this guy out. You could right. use a, use a drone, a predator drone. So the reason for a flying mission makes no sense. Right. So. And how many people were aboard the chopper? Well, there were thirty. There were thirty Americans. And as I say, this this is the largest loss of life in the Afghan war, even now. We lost. Oh. We just lost thirteen Americans right. a few days ago. And if you read the some of the reports, they'll say this is the largest loss of life since 2011. They're pointing back to extortion 17 when they say that. But we lost 30 Americans, but there were also eight Afghans on board. And, an, and, a, and a U.S. American working dog named you know, Bart. Uh, but the Afghans are another question that doesn't make sense. Because I did not know at this, that at this time during the war that we were flying these missions with Afghans on board. And most Americans do not know that. They were members of the mm -hmm. Afghan National Army. Our special forces did not want to do this because the Afghan National Army is not very well trained. And and then we had a situation that we called green on blue where some would simply shoot our guys in the back. We mentioned this in the movie, and um, I think I mentioned in my book as well, but we lost a, a general, a major general in the Army in 2014. His Afghan bodyguard shot him in the back, Major Green. And so our SEALs did not want to be flying with these guys. So... To me, when I wrote the book, it was a surprise to learn this because it cut down their operational effectiveness and they couldn't be trusted. As a matter of fact, if you saw um, just um, if you saw just a, a few days ago uh, when this uh, um, some of the scenes from the uh, the evacuation of uh, Kabul, mm -hmm. um, you know that the Taliban has taken total control of that country. Right. And the interesting thing about it is that. President Biden back in, on July 6th, when I asked a question about this, he said, oh, don't worry about it. There, there are 300,000 Afghan National Army and only 50,000 Taliban. Well, he might have been right about the number, but he, he seriously, seriously did not fully understand 
the um, what's the best to describe this? The total ineffectiveness of the Afghan National Army. Okay, that's why the Taliban was able to sweep through and take control of the country because the ANA, the Afghan National Army, is basically a big paper tiger. But they were being flown on our helicopters with our Navy SEALs and Army Rangers, and our guys did not want them on board for a number of reasons, namely because they they slowed down and hampered operational effectiveness. But another reason is that you had green on blues, in some cases, shooting our guys in the back. And the thing that's strange about this is, that although the official report on Extortion 17 did not reveal this, we learned as we looked in those 1,250 pages, there had been a swap out of the Afghans on this chopper sometime mm-hmm. recently. And so the Afghans who came on board a chopper, we don't know their names to this day. We have since learned that they had initially been assigned to a ranger unit. We've also learned that the Afghans who were initially assigned, assigned to the SEAL unit were angry at the SEAL unit. That's why they did the swap. But all the Afghans were in the same tent there together on this base, and there appears to have been some animus there toward the SEAL team by the Afghans. So we suspect there's a strong possibility there something went wrong on the chopper. The chopper was delayed, you know, seven minutes you know, it was hanging in the air seven minutes after it should be on the ground when it was blown out of the air. And we lost communication with it. And uh, afterwards, we were able to recover several of the autopsies of the guys. And we found bullets in the bodies. We, we discovered for the autopsies, the bullets were found in the bodies of two of the three autopsies we had. And those bullets were thrown away by military pathologists hmm. at the point that they were found. Just threw the bullets away. They weren't identified as you know, NATO round bullets, which we five five six or two two three, they weren't they weren't identified as p- p- potentially the old Soviet round bullets, the seven point seven point six seven six twos. We don't know what they were, and so when these bullets were thrown away, that that violated the military pathology protocol, mm-hmm. and because you're never supposed to throw away any evidence until the investigation is complete. This investigation started, so it looks all these things smack of, of a cover up. Mm-hmm. And um, some of these things are addressed in the in the film Fallen Angel uh, mm-hmm. that I mentioned earlier, and I hope hope you get to see it. I want to see it. I hope your listeners and viewers get to see it as well. So the, I mean, uh, obviously, the, you know, something did go did go wrong, or something happened. Could these have been Taliban uh, operatives? Well, sure they could have been. Sure they could have been, because you know, and I I address this in the book, and we address this in the movie as well. But the um, the former the, the former um, Ambassador, U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan, mm-hmm. Ryan Crocker, came home around 2012, 2013, and was given a speech to a think tank. It might have been a Brookings Institute, I can't remember. But it was a think tank in Washington. He was expressing concern about Taliban infiltration into the Afghan National Army. And he said in that speech that he was concerned that the, the numbers could be at least 25% or even higher. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, and by the way, it didn't. It wouldn't take all of them to have have turned. Mm-hmm. One or two or three. The one guy came on that with bomb vest or something like that. You know, wouldn't it take much to cause havoc? So that could very easily have been the case because in 2011, 2012, that was at the most what we call the kinetic point. In other words, the hottest point. Most most people getting killed, more bullets flying, everything like that of the Afghan war. And the green on blue reached its peak probably the following year, 2012. So it could very well have been an infiltration. Mm-hmm. We saw a lot of this going on, and it could very well have been the case. And the other thing that makes this so suspicious is the black box on this helicopter is missing. <clears throat> you know, modern aircraft have a black box. Right. And the black box <clears throat> has a flight data recorder and has a voice, a cockpit voice recorder. And that cockpit, cockpit voice recorder, something gone wrong with that aircraft, if we could hear it, we'd know. And so when this chopper went down, it went down, Charlotte, at about 2.39 a.m. local time. Mm-hmm. If you read the official report, the official military report tells us the first Americans on the ground were U.S. Army Rangers at 4.12 a.m. Remember, the chopper went down at 2.39, about 2.40 a.m. The official report says Rangers were on the ground at 4.12 a.m. And two minutes later, just two minutes later, U.S. Army Pathfinders came on the ground at 4.14 a.m. The Pathfinders, their job... And we've read their their testimony that they gave that we were able to get was to go in and search and find for search for and find a black box. They searched for three days, could never find it. 
Later, in October of 2011, remember the chopper went down in August 2011. Right. The military brought in family members to Little Creek, Virginia, where, where SEAL, SEAL Team 6 is, for a briefing by the investigating general, a guy named Jeffrey Colt. General Colt was, your sons were heroes. This was done in the fog of war. Nothing could have happened. Nothing could have been done. Give them the, just the typical party line. And some family members had the, let's say, the acumen to ask the general, General, what, what the black box? What happened to the black box on the chopper? Well, the general, and keep this in mind, in, in October of 2011, said, well, we never could find the black box. Get this. The black box washed away in a flood. And that's the position they took. It's ridiculous. And, you know, we pull black boxes off the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Sure. They have a low um, um, a frequency emissions that goes ping, ping, ping. And what had happened here is this chopper had gone down. Remember, I mentioned this Tangy River Valley. There's a thing called a Tangy River. Mm-hmm. If, if, and uh, if you see the movie, you'll see, you'll see pictures of it. It's like a big, big muddy creek. There can be some flash floods to go through there. But the notion that a black box washed away in a flood is ridiculous. So, but the military stuck with that story now for th- until 2014. Two and a half years later, there was a hearing in front of former Congressman Jason Chaffetz's committee in Washington. And the congressman asked an, uh, an administration appointee named Gary Reed, uh, Mr. Reed, what about the black box? I heard it washed away in a flood. What happened to the black box? And Reed says there was never a black box to begin with. Well, of course, we know he's not telling the truth because right. we we know those choppers have black boxes. Matter of fact, as soon as he said that, we had calls from military pilots to our family saying he's lying is you know what off. And as a matter of fact, we have if you get a chance to see the film Fallen Angel, we have sure. you know interviewed a couple, not only of Chinook pilots but pilots who flew that very helicopter. In fact, one who flew it in Afghanistan 48 hours before the shoot down, and Reed's lying. Now, here's the thing: remember. The, you know, the chronologies can become confusing, but I told you that chopper went down around 2.40 a.m., mm-hmm. and, the, and the official report said that rangers were there at 4.12 a.m. and pathfinders at 4.14. We had discovered in the interim time an unidentified unit came onto the ground and searched the area of the shoot-down and left on an unidentified road. And I suspect whoever that was took that black box, but that's not in the official report. We discovered that. So all these things adding up lead you to believe that something doesn't smell right. Something doesn't smell right. It doesn't smell right at all. You know, I'm talking too much, not like you asking a question. No, 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 no. That's fine. No, 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 that's fine. I mean, you know the story better than I do, okay? So, I mean, I'm, I'm leaving it to you to tell the story because you're the guy You're, you're well, the guy on this. You're, you're kind of say that. Um, I want everybody to know the story. Uh, yeah. The other thing the other thing that, that is uh, really um, – my apologies. I should have put this on. That's okay. Thing here. You uh, know what I do? I leave my ring on sometimes. The word, the voice. Be able to oh. show you here. Someone's at your door. <laughs> yeah, I think I think the ring is off. I turn the computer off, turn it off, and it still blings and blinks through everything. There uh, you go. But uh, uh, we, uh, one of the strange things here is that um, remember there were thirty Americans and eight and eight Afghans mm-hmm. on board this chopper. All 38 bodies were brought, not not just the Americans, the Afghans too, were brought to Dover Air Base uh, in a in a C-17, the same air, type of airplane we saw the other day with these poor Afghans hanging on the right, stuff. Right, that's been flying out, right. Off it. They were brought, and so the first question is, why, why do you bring Afghans back to Dover Air Base? Why don't you, you know, their Muslim, the Muslim burial customs, you know, usually demand a burial within, I think it's 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Why do you bring it back? And we've not got a good answer for that. But I can tell you that um, uh, one of the fathers and myself, uh, Billy Vaughn, were in Washington back in 2017. We worked with a couple of members of the Armed Services Committee who were congressmen, Congressman Walter Jones, who's since passed away, Congressman, former Congressman Pete, uh, uh, from down in San Diego, keep saying Pete, Duncan Hunter, excuse me, uh, who was on the uh, Armed Services Committee. And also, uh, Congressman Matt, uh, not Matt Gates, but um, Brian Master, Florida. Okay. And, and we sat there with these congressmen probably four hours, going all over all this. And at the end, Walker Jones at the time, that, the Republicans were still in control of, of the Congress at the time. He, mm-hmm. he wasn't the chairman, but he was the senior ranking, senior member. In other words, he'd been there longer than anybody. So he had a lot of influence. So 
the congressman calls up the chairman of the Armed Services Committee, who is Matt Thornberry uh, from Texas. And the Armed Services Committee was so upset about this that they put a number of written questions to the Pentagon demanding answers. We worked with them to put those questions together. As a matter of fact, the congressman asked me to send sample questions over, and they took most of those. One question we asked, and by the way, I'll tell you, first off, we got answers back, but no straight answers. Every question gave it, they gave us the runaround. Here's a simple question that we asked. We asked this question. Were any Afghans buried in Arlington National Cemetery? Should be should be a simple question, but you're not supposed to bury them there. But we wanted to know because there's a mass grave there, and there, no one has accounted for the Afghan bodies. I think I know why the bodies were brought back, but nobody's accounted for them. So we get an answer back to that question like this. The answer was, um, we, the Pentagon, have read some press reports that the bodies may have been repatriated back to Afghanistan, but that isn't relevant to anything. So mm -hmm. in other words, they don't say yes, they were, or no, they weren't. They point to third-party hearsay press reports they've read that the bodies may have been. In other words, take your pick. Whatever right. pick you want to pick. You know, the Washington, you know, Sacramento Bee, whatever you want to pick, we'll go local for you. Or, you know, Sacramento Bee could say, we have heard reports that blah, 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 blah. You know, a lot of what you read in the newspapers here say in secondhand. So rather than answer the question, the Pentagon had the answer to that question. They could say, yes, they were buried, or no, they were not. They point to third-party press reports. We ask for, we ask who authorized, you know, bullets to be thrown away before the investigation was over of, of bullets from the bodies of our seals. Circular talk. We ask for the identity of the officer who, who gave the authority to throw those bullets away. Circular talk. Mm -hmm. We ask for the names of the Afghans. And, and the, the Afghans, even if we'd ask for the names of the Americans because they passed away, we'd be entitled to that because there's no privacy consideration at that point. Mm -hmm. The Privacy Act doesn't protect people who passed away. But they're not American citizens, so they could easily have given us the names of the Afghans. They played stall ball on that. Did, there were like 15 questions the Armed Services Committee put to the Pentagon, run around on every one because it got something to hide. Well, um, my, what, what I've been thinking about is, is, as you say that they found bullets in in, in in the SEALs, did they find any bullets in the Afghans at all? I mean, was there, did you think there was a firefight in, in the copter? Well, let me be clear. We only have the, the autopsies are not part of the official record. We got mm -hmm. the autopsies privately from several of the family members. We don't have access to Afghan autopsies okay. or any other autopsies. Okay. Um, but we don't know. You know, we just we just don't know. We know, for example, let me just say, they call these bullets, the, the pathologist in an effort to cover his tracks, call the bullets what we call cook-off rounds. I don't know if you're familiar with that phrase, cook-off rounds, but let me, if you're not, or if some of your listeners aren't, let me explain what that means. Cook-off round, you know, people often wonder if you had a, you know, if you have a box of bullets, you know, mm -hmm. and, and you throw you throw those into a fire, you know, most people think, oh, they're going to blow up. Well, right. that really isn't true. If the if the, if the bullets get hot enough that the gunpowder, uh, you know, explodes, then, Charlotte, you're probably too young to remember this, but it used to be a, a cereal called Rice Krispies, and there were, they had a little, little thing called Snap, Crackle, Pop. Right. You know, so all you're going to get from a cook-off round is snap, crackle, pop. It is almost impossible for a cook-off round to penetrate a body. And matter mm -hmm. of fact, the U.S. Army did studies on this and published those studies at the end of World War II because our guys were bringing bullets back from World War II. And we had large metro fire departments like Sacramento, San Francisco. They were worried what happens if these bullets catch on fire. Well, the Army did studies. Nothing would happen. So they called them cook-off rounds. So when we see this thing cook-off, we see it's crazy. But unfortunately, we don't have access to all those because the military has to turn it over. Now, there was one of the things that's been uh, a big mystery is what happened to our, to our bodies and to our American bodies. The military falsely reported on August 9, 2011, the day that these guys were being flown back into Dover, that mm -hmm. because of the cataclysmic nature of this flash, there were no identifiable remains. We know that's a lie. Matter of fact, we've now seen photographs. Matter of fact, if you, if you see this movie Fallen Angel, we have actually um, been able to obtain actual footage from one of the helicopters circling over the, sh the shoot, shoot down site. And you can see American bodies on the ground. Uh, and we've, we've gotten testimony from the Pathfinders that many of our guys were recognizable. And so 
they lied about it. So, and we and we haven't gotten an answer to that either. Um, we and the other thing that's that's really strange here, and this was not covered in my book, but you know what I mentioned a moment ago at the outset, we've had we've had uh, people come forward. One of the one of the naval naval members that came forward, um, a very wonderful lady who was U.S. Navy um, mortician, hospital mm-hmm. mortician, you know, to take care of bodies, and uh, she she told us. That the week that there has there's not been a mass there first off, thankfully we've had very few mass casualties in the navy since Pearl Harbor, because you have to you have to take a ship out or it has to be a fire on a ship or something like that for a mass casualty, and in the Afghan war, um, the navy has lost fewer folks than the other services because most of our our men and women are on ships not all but most, and have been out of the out of line of direct fire on the ground. Mm-hmm. But strangely, um, but but having said that, the Navy has been 100% supportive of this, of this war with our airstrikes and our seals on the ground and our, our Marines and this sort of thing. So I'm not I'm not detracting from my own service. I'm just saying that right. it's re- it has been rare to have a mass casualty Navy. But for the entire week leading up to this, at the Navy Mortician Command in Millington, Tennessee, strangely, they're running a mass casualty drill every every day. They'd never run one in the three or so years that this hospital man mortician, Crystal Wall, who, who was inter- interviewed in a movie and came forward. They'd never run one since she had been there. So every day, prepare for mass casualty, for mass casualty. On the morning of August 6th, about four in the morning, she gets a call from her boss. And he says, be prepared to fight it over mass casualty. She thought it was part of the drill. It wasn't part of the drill. It was almost like they knew what was coming. I mean, there are just so many unanswered questions here that this thing stinks to the highest heaven. And uh, and just unfortunately, you know, watching what's happened this past week with losing right. 12 Marines and a, a naval corpsman, uh, you know, that that type of thing brings us home and brings it, what happened in 2011, you know, brings it home back to roost and caused, inflicts a lot of pain on people who um, still haven't gotten over it. But uh there's so many th- so many coincidences here from the from the black box disappearing to the chopper losing communication with the chopper chopper hanging in the air when it hangs in the air at 100 feet over the air makes itself a target to, to you know to to the bullets being thrown away um, to the lies about the condition of the bodies to failure to answer questions about whether Afghans are buried in Arlington Cemetery. And it just goes on and on and on and on. You know, why are you sending these guys in here? Why are you sending the SEAL Team 6 for a mid-level Taliban operative named Kari Tahir, who two weeks later was taken out by a missile from an F-16? You could have taken him out from, by a missile to begin with. Why are you doing that? So there's no explanation. The official government explanation is, ah, uh, was done in the fog of war. These men were heroes. And, yes, they were heroes. They were, they mm-hmm. were, the, they were the, the best that we had to offer. But there's been no plausible explanation for this mission. There's been no plausible explanation for why it was run. Mm-hmm. And we still continue to seek answers to this day. That's interesting. You know, um, how, how much of the copter was left on the ground, you know, <clears throat> after it was blown up or after it crashed? Well, you know, we've heard we've heard varying reports on that as well. Um, when I went through the initial um, I went through the initial uh, crash report, there were photo that the the. the the claim was the, the chopper was picked up and and its parts were taken to Bagram Air Base where the crashed mm-hmm. investigation teams, you know, sorted through the wreckage. Right. Now, you can see that on the ground, you can see certain parts laying on the ground. For example, the rotors, these big rotors, the rotor blades. Um, the official military story was that an RPG shot right. it and hit it and blew through one of those blades. And that might be true. It, that part might be true because they were hanging in the air for so long, making themselves a target. Um, so we see parts of the chopper on the ground, but we've been told by now we've had U.S. Army Rangers come forward who were the were reportedly the first on the scene, although I know that someone else was there. But they were the first official Americans on the scene who tell us that the, that the main part of the chopper, everything was so hot that virtually everything was burned up. Mm-hmm. Having said that, if your listeners are wondering, that black box is still in a sufficient fire, uh, uh, sufficiently contained fireproof 
container that you can't burn it up. Right. But a lot of it we believe was burned up. We we apparently do have parts of it. Um, so, but we don't even have straight answers yet on that. But our guys are on the ground. Our rangers have said, hey, you could see very little of it. In fact, we had a, a member of the 10th Mountain Division come down the next morning whose job was to both look for, his name is Trip Hamilton. He's interviewed as well. His job was to look for uh, the, the, um, the black box and also to help prepare the body. She said, you can see virtually nothing in the chopper. So I, I believe that most of it was incinerated. But, uh, but there, here's the crazy thing about it. We have bodies that were identifiable. That's the crazy thing about it. The other mm -hmm. thing about this cook-off round theory, one of the guys who had cook-off rounds in his body was thrown probably 40, 50 yards away from the chopper, and you can actually see his body in the aerial footage that's in the movie. So it would be impossible for a cook-off round inside a chopper to have gone off right. to penetrate his body to reach that far. Well, that's what I was wondering because, I mean, I, I know they said RPG took it out, but, I mean, what if it crashed because somebody had shot, you know, because if they were shooting our guys in the chopper, I mean, what, what if it went down simply just as a crash and then all the stuff got spread out because right. the pilot was dead, you know, and the co-pilot was dead. Well, let me just tell you, I, I haven't ruled that out as a possibility at all. My gut tells me that this mission was pre-planned and coordinated. Mm -hmm. um, I believe there were RPGs on the ground waiting for it, but I also believe something happened inside the chopper. Sure. And matter of fact, we've had reports of an RPGs being fired. We've also had reports of a massive fireball going off in the air. The RPG would not cause a fireball fireball going off in the air. And these are comments made by the Apache helicopter pilots who were accompanying extortion. So I believe it was coordinated. Um, the French and British, by the way, the, the shoot down was not even announced uh, by the American administration, it was announced by President Karzai. The Afghans announced a shoot-down mm -hmm. and announced that there were SEALs on board. And the British and French press, although our press did not touch this, the British mm -hmm. and French press both quoted court sources inside the Karzai administration. Hamid Karzai had been the president at the time of Afghan, Afghanistan, the government store. Sources inside that administration said the Taliban knew the exact flight path of this helicopter. I believe that it was coordinated and so I think something went on inside a chopper. Why else would they be trying to hide the, why would they be hiding the, uh, the, uh, the black box? Why would they, why would they hide it, lie about it and give us changing stories unless they have something to hide? Right. right. So I, so what you have said in my gut, I believe that something did happen inside the chopper. I also believe there were got there were, there was Taliban on the ground with RPG because I think this was a coordinated attack. Uh, and I think it was coordinated because they were upset about the bin Laden killing. So sure. it's a retaliatory thing, very, very well coordinated, and our rules of engagement were set not to help us very much, unfortunately. Because, like you, like you just said about uh, aboard the chopper. Because I'm thinking too, I mean, all it would take, like you say, there was an explosion, which the RPG wouldn't have done. You know, a fireball. Right. I mean, that right. could have been caused by a grenade hitting something inside the chopper. You know, to yes, set it off. Correct. That's exactly right. If there were, if let's say one of those guys jumped on board the chopper, one of those Afghan guys, and had a, you know, had a suicide belt around him. Yes. You know, I mean, there could have been a firefight trying to take him out before he set it off. A lot of things could have happened. Um, we do know, again, that these tap, that these Afghan, they, they call them APU. If you hear the movie, you you hear the phrase APU. Sure. And again, it goes back to one of your earlier questions. That's one of those military targets. APU means Afghan Personnel Unit. It, it means an Afghan Army guy who's on board the chopper. Okay. Um, and, and again, Remember, I told you we learned about the switch out. Mm -hmm. and, and if you watch the movie, you'll, you'll catch the Pentagon lying about right when we got them lying on tape about switch out. Which switch out happened. And what happened is there was a Ranger team and a SEAL team flying out of this forward operating base, Shank, which is in Logar province. And each team at this time had Afghans assigned to fly with them. But those Afghans went and they, they lived in basically the same, um, I've got driver support trying to get me to open an account with you. We, they lived in the same barracks. They all intermingled together. And we know that just two weeks earlier, the Afghans flying with the SEALs were angry at the SEALs, apparently because SEALs had taken out somebody they didn't think should have been taken out. They mm -hmm. were so mad, they refused to fly with the SEALs. So the Afghans who'd been flying with the Rangers switched over that night to jump on board with the SEALs. 
but they even though one had been flying with the Rangers and one with the SEALs, they all lived in the same barracks. They all, you know, hung out. They were all Afghans. And I have reason to believe that the anger that one team had against the SEALs probably was not just isolated that one team. It doesn't make sense it would have been. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. So I, I believe something did happen on the chopper. Um, I think circumstantial evidence points to that. There's a difference between circumstantial and direct evidence. So many things, you know, went wrong. There's no reason, first off, this, this, this is an Army National Guard chopper. Sure. Uh, the Colorado National Guard flew it. The Pentagon, the initial the, the report, they tried to make an issue of that, you know, as if our SEALs should have been flying on something, and they should have been flying on special operations choppers, okay? Mm -hmm. But the original court report tried to pit the families against one another, arguing over whether they should have been flying on the CH-47 CH, with the Army National right. Guard. And the conclusion that General Mattis, who signed off this report, was Mad Dog Mattis was the right. commander's neutral command at the time. Was we find that the pilots are fully uh, qualified, et cetera, et cetera. Well, he was right. Mm -hmm. He's right about that. But I think they were throwing a diversionary argument in there. Matter of fact, the senior pilot on board this Chinook was a chief warrant officer out of the Denver area named David Carter, and he'd been flying for twenty some years. And what a lot of folks don't realize is that some of our reservist pilots are just as good, if not better, than our military pilots. Why? Because they've got a lot more experience. They've been flying for 20-some years. So, And so back to my original point, to suggest that this chopper could not complete a mission, 10 minutes wheels up the wheels down and find the landing zone. Mm -hmm. This chopper had flown another mission for the Rangers about three hours earlier, and its sister chopper. There were, there were two two extortions, 16 and 17. They mm -hmm. flew a mission for the Rangers, perfectly executed, had been flying perfectly executed mission. All of a sudden, can't find this landing zone. With a pilot on board with 20 years' experience, with GPS, you know, you and I, we can flip on our cell phones, and a GPS will take us to our garages. Absolutely. Uh, military <laughs> GPS is far more sophisticated than what we have. Right. The notion they couldn't find a landing zone is preposterous. The other thing that, 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 that I just mentioned uh, there were two of these extortion helicopters, two of these CH-47s, extortion 17, which went down, and extortion 16. Both of these choppers flew a mission three and a half hours earlier involving Army Rangers. These Army Rangers are the same Rangers who would come on to the shoot-down zone later in the morning at 4.12 in the morning. But these two helicopters, when they flew the Rangers, they flew the Rangers according to standard protocol. Half the Ranger team was on one helicopter, Half was on the other. They take off. That way, if one goes down, you save half the team. Mm -hmm. But strangely, when this mission involving the SEAL started, both helicopters take off. But rather than splitting the team half in one and half in the other, all of them were crammed on extortion 17. Extortion 16 was empty except the flight crew. Flew alongside it, but then when it's time to go in, backed off. Mm -hmm. So why do you, why do you even... Why do you do that? Why do you, why do you split the seals right. up? See, these are just questions that scream for answers. We don't have the answers. Yeah, something's not right there. That doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, you're right. Got that at right. all. So, um, like you say, this this was a coordinated attack with whoever was on board and whoever was on the ground. I, mean, I believe that, so. That yeah. much is obvious. Yeah, I believe. So. I, absolutely, I believe so. The stalling in the air. See, there was a reason that chopper stalled. Mm -hmm. And it points to coordination. Even if there wasn't a bomb that went off inside the chopper, mm -hmm. they needed to get they needed to get the chopper still in the air so they could take a shot at it. Mm -hmm. So that you know you, you stop it in the air, and now it's a sitting duck. So if it was only the RPG from the ground that took it out, if it stopped in the air, that shows there was coordination here, which mm -hmm. I believe there was coordination here. Um, but I also believe something happened to the chopper. I think there was a firefight possibly. Why why would you have bullets? Sure. I mean, there's no other logical reason unless there was a firefight either on either in the chopper <clears throat> or after the chopper went down. So now the question not to interrupt, but the question I have is like you say that the chopper the chopper was hovering at the time. I mean if there was a firefight, is, is the pilot gonna keep the chopper from, from moving or do you think somebody took took control of the chopper to get it to or, hover you, that you, long? You know, you know? I mean, you know <clears throat> Look what happened in 9-11. They took control of the cockpits. Right. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. We, we did, or at least that's the official story. Mm -hmm. We don't know 
what we do know is the chopper was supposed to make calls in. So remember, it's 10 minutes, wheels up, wheels down. By pre-designed mm -hmm. flight protocol, it was supposed to make a call in at the six-minute mark before landing, at the three-minute mark before landing, and the one-minute mark. It didn't mm -hmm. call in properly at the six-minute mark. So whatever happened must have happened up to the six-minute mark. When they were waiting for the call in at the three-minute mark, there was no call at all. Mm -hmm. And it was 10 minutes after that six minute call should be made. We hear from the chopper. We hear another, we hear another request from the pilot. Can you express, we hear a strange request from Extort 17 pilot. Can you mm -hmm. give me a sparkle? And a sparkle is like a burst of light. He wanted the burst of infrared light. Remember that CH1, that AC-130 gunship flying overhead. They can actually burst infrared light down on the ground. You can't see with your naked eyes. You can see it with night vision goggles. And, uh, <clears throat> And one of the Apache pilots said, are you one minute out? Because the, the burst of light was not supposed to occur until they were one minute out. Why? Mm -hmm. Because Taliban can see it. <clears throat> they can mm -hmm. see with their night vision goggles, and they can come to this landing. See, we're flying at night, so they can't see. It's a moonless at this point. But mm -hmm. you burst light, and you can see it. And and one of the Apache pilots said, are you one minute out? Extortion pilot says, no, that's a negative. Uh, but I'm having trouble lining up my landing zone. Mm -hmm. And then the Apache pilot says, well, you're not even a minute out. And you're asking for a damn sparkle. That's, that's exactly what the Apache pilot said. Something gone wrong inside the chopper. So as to, as to whether or not you had Taliban holding a gun to the head of the pilots or had taken control of the chopper right. or had, you know, killed the pilots or, and knew enough to hold the chopper in the air while their comrades could take it out. We don't know. And, and here's the other thing. You, you know, I, I do believe there was some cremation involved here. I believe the reason that the Afghan bodies were brought back to the United States is probably to cremate them. Um, one of the things that I didn't have a full grasp of at the time when I began to write the book was the sophistication of the biometrics program that our military had put into place in Afghanistan. You may have heard some about it just in the last week, Taliban taking our biometric system and using it to go hunt down people. Okay, The reason we had a biometric system, Charlotte, is because in the Afghan war, our guys, more of our, our service members were getting killed from IEDs. These are bombs in the ground like mines than from the Taliban shooting us. They, they don't want to take our SEALs and Rangers and 82nd Airborne on in a firefight because they'll get killed. But they go plant bombs out of place, IEDs. So when a bomb blows up uh, and they hide them in the, in, uh, they're on roads, they take vehicles out, they're extremely dangerous. So we began to, to, to learn that when these attacks, these IED attacks happen, we would see scraps of the explosive device, maybe mm -hmm. a, a, a thumbnail size of a piece of a fragment here or thimble size there or something the size of a quarter or maybe something even larger. And on these fragments, there was DNA. Sometimes it was blood, sometimes it's fingerprints, all kinds of things. We discovered that if we began to force the Afghan population into a biometrics program by submission, which we did, Mm -hmm. That in the future, when these bombs went off and we see one quarter of the edge of a fingerprint on one piece of shrapnel from a bomb that's killed one of our guys, we can get a biometrics match and go track that person down. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that, and, and I wasn't even fully aware of that. I, I became more aware of that on a case that I worked on subsequently. Because I, I went out of military about 10 years before the war on terror. And I wasn't in Afghanistan. I went out of the end of the Persian Gulf War. Uh, which we didn't have that then. So, um, but but the only way to destroy that biometrics biometrics evidence, well, is to cremate the bodies. Sure. So if you cremate the bodies, and if this were a terrorist, see if this were a terrorist attack on the inside of that chopper, we could have probably proved that by a biometrics match. If you cremate the bodies of the Afghans, you'll never be able to make that biometrics match. And I suspect. That may have happened, and I suspect that probably there were Afghan remains, or probably ashes, or something, probably buried mm -hmm. at Arlington, which is probably why the Pentagon dodged that question. Hmm. And then I, I see I keep you know trying to wrap my head around the chopper, like you know, um, hovering, because I mean, if you're going into a if you're going into you know enemy territory, the last thing you're going to do is let the chop you know and you know that and you know they're going to be shooting. The right. last thing you're going to do is let that chopper hover. That's true. If you have control of the chopper, mm -hmm. and that's the question. 
if you have control of the chopper, it would not, there'd be no reason for it to be hovering. So, and that's, therein lies, therein lies the mystery. If we, it, listen, if we had the black box mm -hmm. and the cockpit voice recorder, you and I could solve this within the next 15 seconds, probably. Sure. Because we would know. Right. We would know. Somewhere it's in one of those boxes, like at the end of that Indiana Jones movie, you know, when they take the Ark of the Covenant and yep. put it in the warehouse. It's in Great one of those slot. boxes somewhere in some warehouse. One of my favorite all-time flicks, you're right. Yeah, uh, where it's hidden so. away. Yeah. Where it's definitely hidden away. Yeah. Um, this is just fascinating to me. Absolutely fascinating. You know, this whole thing. What what was the family's reaction? I mean, when you said, did, did you talk to the families about any of this, or what was their reaction to the book? Well, I've worked primarily with um, three families, and mainly with one one more than the mm -hmm. others, Billy and Karen Bond, and they have you know they've been very outspoken goal star families, and they were very pleased. Uh, you know, honestly, uh, remember going back to the meeting that we had in Atlanta. They they took a leap of faith even to trust me. They didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, there's been another book written after my book, which is, uh, I won't give any credit, any publicity for it, but it was written and published by the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum trying to say this was a fog of war thing. It's the government, more the government cover-up. But the family members that I've worked with are extremely grateful, um, I believe, because uh, the book uh, does, in fact, uh, try to expose the inconsistencies that the military has given us um, with regard to the shoot-down. So, um, and I'm grateful for the families as well. So I'm more grateful for them than they are for me. I'm sure they are, they have played the ultimate sacrifice. You know, my son is, as, as I mentioned, is a paratrooper and was in Afghanistan last year. And of course I'm biting my fingernails and praying every day he's there. But, mm -hmm. um, but they have the, these family members have been through hell and back and, uh, and, and these, Marine family members who are now going, receiving their son's bodies back into the United States. Now, even as we speak, are are going through a type of, you know, insurmountable grief and pain and anger and all that that we, we can't fully understand. And I can tell you that even now, um, the family members uh, haven't gotten over loss of their sons. They, they still break down and cry when they think about it, when they talk about it. Um, it's hard. It's hard. You know, the, the wounds haven't gone away. Absolutely. So, and I think about them all every day. Uh, we it do. Was, and yeah. I appreciate you putting the, the, uh, the link up to the film sure. there. You can go there and, and anybody can go to that particular site, fallenangel.film. Take a look at the trailer. See if you like it. If you like the, the video, you know, the your instructions on how to, how to order that. But some of the family members are interviewed in the, in the film. And uh, you can kind of get a feel for, you know, and bear in mind that this, this particular movie, Fallen Angel, um, was shot over the last couple of years at various times in Florida, in Chicago, and, and in Georgia, and in Arizona. And uh, so uh, these fan members, you're hearing from them relatively recently, and mm -hmm. you can see and feel the pain even now uh, on this, and I still feel for them. Um, what has been the reaction of the military to this book? Uh, military hasn't said anything. The mm -hmm. government, uh, through the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, has tried to say conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory. But they're, they're full of mm -hmm. crap. Listen, you know, I, I've been a trial lawyer for 30-some years. I can assess evidence. I, I know when somebody's lying, they're lying, they're, you know what's off. So uh, they have largely uh, tended to, other than the book that was written through the Air and Space Museum, and some of the some of the military publications have tried to say, oh, well, just a uh, just one of those things. Most of these people don't know what they're talking about. They haven't right. gone through the evidence like I have. They haven't interviewed witnesses. They haven't considered the official military reports. There's an old saying, Charlie, you know, talk is cheap. Um, uh, but they may, as this movie gains popularity, they may try to speak some more. Uh, Mr. Reed during the his presentation to the Congressional Committee in 2014 when he said the box, there was never a black box to begin with. He and four military officers who were all morticians, none of whom were on the ground in Afghanistan, tried to just toe the party line 
was a lucky shot. It was one of those things that happens. In, their position has been the fog of war, and that I expect, I expect mm-hmm. they will continue to maintain that position. But, you know, this, to be honest, not only the largest loss of life in, in the Afghan war, and I hope, and I hope we don't have any larger losses of life or any more loss of, loss of mm-hmm. life in this war. Uh, can't guarantee it. But, um, you know, I think it's probably one of the largest cover-ups in the history of the United States military. And I don't think they want to say too much because the more they talk, the more they're going to get exposed. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I do hope that folks will see the film and read the book. And I think you see the film runs about 90 minutes. Uh, okay. It can, it really, you know, no film can, can give, can include as much information in a book in a, as a book and no book can tell the whole story. And my book doesn't tell the whole story and neither does the film, but the film helps to bring the story to life. Uh, and it helps to bring these guys, you know, to life in the best way that we can here 10 years after the fact. So I hope, uh, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, we want to expose the truth of what happened because we want to deter this type of conduct in the future. Mm-hmm. But not only that, we also want to bring honor to these guys. They they deserve to be honored. And the fact that most Americans still, still to this day probably don't even know about them to me is a shame and is, and is a disgrace. And I hope that that can change. And you're helping with that tonight. So I really very much appreciate what you're doing by having me here. Well, this is a story that needs to be out. You know, it you're does. right. These guys do have to be honored. The truth has to come out about this stuff because it just it's just disgusting. It's really disgusting that this can go on even with our own military, you know, that, that, that people do this. And I want to thank you for coming on and thank you for writing this book. Because, I, you know, it's a great service to the country. Well, thank you for having me, Charlotte. And uh, uh, I really appreciate it. Wish you all the best. Hope to see you again soon. Best wishes to you, your listeners and viewers. And thanks for having me again. And how can people find you? You can find me at DonBrownBooks.com. That's my website. You can find me on Twitter at DonBrownBooks, at DonBrownBooks. Same at Facebook. And you can also email me, DonBrownBooks at gmail.com. Well, I hope we can have you on at a later time and talk to you some more about this. You betcha. You have right, a great so evening. Thanks so too. much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. You too, Charlotte. Bye-bye. Okay, guys, that was a, that, that was fascinating, and that is something that has to be brought out because lots of cover-up and lots of, li- you know, lots of lives lost, and it's, it's very, very, very sad. Tomorrow, uh, we have a change of guest. Uh, the guest that was supposed to be on, um, her house burned down in the Calder fire. So I have a last-minute guest coming on, and that's going to be Hugh Ann Nugent. And we're kind of shifting gears tomorrow. Hugh Ann Nugent is an, en- is an energy healer, and she's based out of Eldorado Hills. And she's uh, been working with people for years, and she's done some really good work with folks. And uh, so we're going to have her on tomorrow. Now, if you like this show, share it with five people. We're trying to get you know more people interested in, in, in watching this show because we do have varying topics just like bringing Don on tonight you know we do have do a lot of, a lot of different topics not just paranormal so if you like the show share it with five people if you didn't like the show share it with five of your enemies doesn't really matter um, we are a nonprofit show and normally I have a ticker running along the bottom but I didn't do that because as, as you could tell during the show we had some connection problems, which um, hopefully everybody got to see a full show tonight. I was glad to get back on. And um, so you can donate to us at PayPal Me at California Haunts. The reason why we have a PayPal Me is because we are a nonprofit organization and all this uh, comes out of pocket to keep the show going and on the air. So I'd really appreciate anything you can help us out with a little bit. I hate begging, but, you know, times are what they are. And go over to our YouTube channel. It's kind of hard to find. I don't know why, but for some reason, they've made it difficult. You just want to Google um, California Haunts YouTube, and you will find us. And subscribe over there, because if you get on there, you're going to see about 65, 70 uh, videos of of different shows we've done on different topics. And I'd really appreciate you um, subscribing. So anyway, again, tomorrow, we are going to have Hugh Ann Nugent on. And uh, it's going to be a different kind of show. So if you're into healing or if you're having trouble with your business, if you're having money problems, maybe she can help you out, give you some advice. But thank you guys for coming tonight. And I will see you all tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. Have a good one.